You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. So, does anyone want to come forward? And I believe we're starting a new series today. We're leaving John for a bit. Well, it'll be awesome. <laughs> so, we'll just pray for him, Kim. Just get you to stretch out your arms to Ian. Father, we, we thank you for the word that you placed on Ian's heart, Father, for us, Lord. We, we thank you, Father, that, um, that it's there and it's in season, Lord, and that it's what we need to hear, Lord. Would you teach us through this, Father? Would you encourage Ian through it, Lord? And, and we thank you for the great time that we can spend in you, Lord, and to learn learn of your ways, Father. Amen. Thanks, Mike, and uh, good morning, everybody. Um, Merle just leaned over and whispered to me with the NCMI Equip. Uh, it doesn't cost a lot of money, but if you want to go but you're struggling for finances, come and talk to us. We'd rather help you out with that and uh, get you there than you miss out um, because finances are a bit of a struggle. So um, come and talk to us afterwards. Um, awesome morning already. Hasn't it been just stunning? And what incredible songs we've been singing this morning. Songs that uh, are focus on Christ and on the work that he has done on the cross. And um, in light of that, I, I've got a, a book, some of you know of it, The Valley of Vision it's called. And it's a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. So they're prayers and devotions that were written hundreds of years ago by the Puritans. And um, this morning there was one I read before I came to church that I, I actually used to open our prayer meeting before church this morning. And uh, given the powerful presence of the Lord here with us this morning and uh, what we've been seeing, I thought I might uh, share it with you as well. And... Uh, because it's in fairly old English, I'll update some of the, the words to make it a little bit more understandable. But uh, it's about our, about our um, approach to God, being able to come into his presence now because of what Christ has done for us. And the, the writer said and prayed, Gracious Lord, I praise you continually for permission to approach your throne of grace and to spread my wants and my desires before you. I'm not worthy of your blessings and mercies, for I am far gone from original righteousness. My depraved nature reveals itself in disobedience and rebellion. My younger days found me in discontent, pride, envy, revenge. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor the multiplied sins of later years, my failure to make the most of my time and talents, my abuse of your mercies and means my wasted Sabbaths, my perverted seasons of grace, my long neglect of your great salvation, my disregard of your Son, the friend of sinners. While I confess my guilt, help me to feel it deeply with self-abhorrence and self-despair, yet to remember there is hope in you and to see the Lamb that takes away sin. Through him, May I return to you, to listen to you, to trust in you, to delight in your law, to obey you and to be upheld by you. Preserve my understanding from error, my affections from love of idols, my lips from speaking lies, my conduct from the stain of sin, 
my character from the appearance of evil, that I may be harmless, blameless, rebukeless, exemplary, useful, light-giving, prudent, zealous for thy glory and the good of my fellow men. We've been singing this morning about the work that Christ has done on the cross on our behalf and the work that he did opened the doors to the throne of grace for us. We know we're sinners. We know we were born in sin. We know we were raised in sin. We know even as born again believers, we still sin. But his mercies are new every morning. Every morning. There's never a moment when those doors are closed to us. There's never a moment when his grace is exhausted because we've sinned too much. When Saxon read Psalm 24 for us this morning, there's one uh, couple of verses in there that says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now you might think that you can't lift up clean hands and have a pure heart this morning because of your sin. But the work that Christ did on the cross took that away, paid the penalty for that, Washed you clean. And not only did he bear that sin on the cross, but he gave you his righteous standing before the Father. That's why we can come into the throne of grace, into the courts of heaven, with boldness, not quivering, not shaking, not trembling because of fear of being rebuked, and punished, but with boldness, because we stand before the throne of grace with the righteousness of Christ. What an awesome word. What an incredible God. And when we sing those songs next time, pray you'll be reminded of those truths that it's the work of Christ that opens the door to heaven for us. Not what we do, not our own efforts, not our own goodness, but the goodness of Christ. And that in the sort of roundabout way sort of introduces what I want to talk to you about this morning and uh, over the next several weeks. And that's about transformation. It's about conforming, being conformed, I should say, to the image of Christ. Um, I don't know if any of you noticed earlier on, but we've got an overhead now. We've changed our overhead um, that previously said to to know Jesus and to make him known uh, is now being conformed to the image of Christ. It's, uh, I really sense that this coming year, our own personal focus as believers should be on being conformed to the image of Christ. So when we get to the end of this year, as we look back and we can say, I see where I was at in January, February this year, and I see the work Christ has done in my heart in that time, and I know without arrogance I can say I'm more like Christ now than I was at the start of the year. 
So that's my goal in this series. And uh, um, let me get into it. Mike kicked off, those who are here would remember that Mike kicked off the new year back in January for us, talking about the importance of not missing God's call on your life, his will for your life in 2019. Most of us, and I include myself in this, are content to plod along through life, not seeming to go anywhere in particular, just allowing the currents of life to take us wherever it goes. We go with the flow, we get pushed around, you might say, by life. And then at the end of the year, or when we hit a milestone age, 40, 50, 60, whatever it may be, we look back with some regret and say, hmm, I could have done more with that year. I could have done more with that decade. The start of that decade, I thought, you know what, if I do such and such, I'll be a different person by the end of it, and I didn't do it. And I look back with regret. I've done that a number of times over the years. But there's no reason why we should allow our circumstances to push us around like that, to rule our lives like that. So stepping out of our study of John, John's Gospel for a few weeks or so, or maybe several weeks, depending how it all goes, and I want to look at how we live in God's will for us and how we live with intentionality, with purpose. What do we need to do to be intentional about our spiritual lives, intentional about pursuing God's will. And how can we even know what God's will is? In Romans 8.29, it tells us, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's our slogan, if you like, for this year. In order that he might be the first born among many brothers to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is the will of God for each and every one of us. We can get bogged down in chasing after other things, trying to determine, is it my will to take this, is God's will to take this job or that job or marry this person or that person or whatever? God's will at its heart is that we be conformed to the image of his Son. And you'll find the more that happens in your life and the more you pursue that, the more naturally all the other things and the decisions about jobs and other stuff will fall into place and you won't actually have to stress about them. This is one of the reasons why God doesn't just bump us off and take us to heaven when we get born again because he's got a purpose for our lives in conforming us to the image of Christ, teaching us daily how to become more like Christ and working in us by his Holy Spirit to make us reflect Jesus born. If you want God's plan for your life summed up in one simple phrase, it is to be conformed to the image of Christ. You actually don't really need much more than that, I don't think. It was one of the great burdens of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4.19. Paul talked about how desperately he wanted his friends to become like Christ. My little children, he says there, I am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You mothers would understand, I'm sure, much better than the rest of us, the anguish of childbirth. I'm sure the rest of us have seen 
one born every minute on TV or something, or we know people that talk about how painful childbirth is, the anguish of childbirth. That is the pain that Paul felt for his friends to be, uh, to have Christ formed in them. Do you get a sense of how important this was to Paul? I feel a bit of that burden myself too. Um, that's part of the reason why we've got that slide on the overhead showing a cross on the background of uh, a sky silhouetted against the sky and the scripture being conformed to the image of Christ. Because I've been feeling a need as we've come into this year for myself and in fact for all of us as City Edge folk that uh, we should be drawing nearer to Christ. And we've heard something about that this morning. As Mike got up and shared this morning, I think Harley as well, about drawing nearer to Christ. It should be a goal for all of us to spend time and do the necessary things because there are some things we can do to help us in that pursuit. To know him, to love him, to become more like him. So this first week, I hope to show you the importance, in fact, the necessity of living with that purpose and that goal in mind. There's several keys called spiritual disciplines that will help us to achieve that goal and over the next several weeks we'll dig into each one of those keys and uh, as we go along I'll plan to give you some practical steps to help you because some of these disciplines are not particularly easy to do if you don't have any direction in it. And I'll give you advance warning this morning I'm going to finish off today by asking all of us to commit together to this pursuit of purposeful, intentional living to being conformed to the image of Christ. And over the course of the year, I'm going to ask you sometimes publicly, sometimes privately, how are you going in your spiritual disciplines? So I hope you will commit to this and we can do this together. We do it as a family and encourage each other. So one of the key texts for this series comes from Romans chapter 12 where Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now that's the ESV translation of the Bible, which I use almost exclusively when I'm studying and uh, preaching. Um, I like the fact that the ESV sticks pretty close to the original languages but is pretty readable as well. But there's a paraphrase I like of this from J.B. Phillips which I think was done back in the 60s or something. But he says in Romans 12.1 With eyes wide open to the mercies of God I beg you my brothers as an act of intelligent worship to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable to him. Verse 2, don't let the world around you 
squeeze you into its mould. But let God remould your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands and moves towards the goal of true maturity. As your spiritual teacher, I give you this piece of advice to each one of you. Don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or your importance, but try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities by the light of the faith that God has given to you all. I love the way Phillips puts it back in verse 2 there. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mould. sure you know exactly what Phillips is saying, what Paul was saying. Phillips paraphrased that way. That's exactly what we're prone to. Rivers always flow downhill. They always follow the path of least resistance and the river of our earthly lives, our existence on this, this planet, flows the same way. But unfortunately, downhill is directly away from God. It takes effort to swim upstream. Ask any salmon that's going up the spawn. It takes effort to swim upstream, to swim towards God. You may recall a couple of weeks ago I made a statement that the world is relentless in its opposition to Jesus Christ and to his followers. If we think the world is going to help us to grow more like Christ, we're going to be sadly disappointed. The world wants everything but us being like Christ. But as the world descends into seeming chaos, politically, economically, uh, wars, pollution, famines, droughts, abuse, trafficking, as the world descends into horror, how desperately important is it for us to step out of that river and be different, to stand out. How can we be a beacon of light if we look like the world? In the midst of this gloomy picture, though, let me give you a ray of hope, a ray of light. So I don't want to crush you with despair before we even get started in this series. Because there is hope, assuming you're a Christian, of course, and I think everyone here is, but there is hope. Little children, John wrote in one of his letters, you are from God and have overcome them, the false prophets, or we might say, the pressures of the world. You are from God and you have overcome them, for greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We have a power residing within us that can energise us to swim upstream. As the passage in Romans 12 tells us, we can be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We can let God remould our minds from within. And that's what this series is about. It's about allowing the Holy Spirit to do the work of renewing our minds through a number of activities that we undertake, the spiritual disciplines that I mentioned. Of course, this isn't an option for non-Christians. They have no hope of swimming upstream against the current. It's impossible. The only way to do it is to put your trust in Jesus Christ and be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it. For he is the only one that has the power. 
to resist and to overcome that relentless current flowing downhill. But we're prone to thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, as it's said there in Romans. I don't mean so much in regard to our skills and our abilities and our education and our talents. We may be highly educated, we may be experts in our field of work. We may have very good cause for thinking of ourselves highly and we may be able to think highly of ourselves in that regard without arrogance. But we're prone to think we're in better shape spiritually than we really are, I think. That may be complacency on our part about our spiritual lives, might be lack of introspection or it may be a misunderstanding of the gospel. But as J.B. Phillips puts it, don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or your importance, but try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities by the light of the faith that God has given to you all. So a sane estimate of our capabilities begins with an acknowledgement that we are powerless within ourselves to resist the flow of this river. We need the Holy Spirit to help us do that. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that everything in the universe is experiencing energy loss. Everything's running down like a clock wound up. Tick, 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 stop. You're running out of energy. Unless the Lord should choose to inject more energy into that universe, eventually it's going to run out. It's true spiritually, just as it's true in the world of science. If we choose to neglect the means provided to us to wind up the clock of our spiritual lives, it's inevitable that we will run out of energy as well. We will run out of steam. Ultimately, of course, we require the Lord to inject his, in, his life, his energy into us to sustain us. But there are things that we can do as believers with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us to help ourselves. I'm again suffering in labour pains for you until Christ is formed in you. My desire is that Christ should be formed in each of us in increasing measure as we go about our daily lives. But it doesn't happen willy-nilly, it doesn't happen independent of ourselves, it doesn't happen if we don't practice some spiritual disciplines. So I'll be talking about several spiritual disciplines over the next several weeks that will help us to grow into Christ and they are, you can get them on the screen, prayer, fasting, Bible reading, meditation, worship, fellowship and confession. They're the spiritual disciplines we'll be looking at. I'll probably combine a few prayer and fasting, depending how I go, might combine together into one message. We'll see how it all pans out. But, um, spiritual disciplines isn't a term we use much in this day and age, is it? It sounds like something from a previous age, back in an era where religion was tightly controlled and probably even legalistic. We live in an enlightened era, don't we? We live in the era of grace, not under law. We don't need to practice spiritual disciplines. Without doubt, the spiritual disciplines can become legalistic. They can be exercised in a legalistic manner. They can be imposed on us by someone else in a legalistic manner or we can practice them ourselves in a legalistic manner.
we'll look at that danger shortly, but the spiritual discipline should never be legalistic. They should be done out of a desire of our hearts to be conformed to the image of Christ. As an athlete trains for the Olympic Games, or a musician practices for a performance, or a student studies for an exam, you have to put in effort. Imagine if we were to tell those people, chill out, relax, don't train so hard, don't study so hard, don't be so legalistic about it. Imagine the response we would get. Rather, we admire their commitment, don't we? We look at it and think, well, gee, it must take some effort to be an Olympic gold medal winner. And no doubt it does. We know that training is necessary if these people are going to achieve their goal of Olympic gold or passing that exam or putting on the perfect piano performance. You have to train to be the best you can be. Paul says exactly the same thing in his first letter to Timothy. He says, train yourself for godliness. The NASB translation puts it, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So having established, I hope that there may just be a place for spiritual discipline in the Christian life, how would we define spiritual discipline? Spiritual disciplines are those practices found in Scripture. And that's the important phrase, I think, in there. Those practices found in Scripture that promote spiritual growth among believers in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Dr. Don Whitney is the one responsible for that, that uh, definition. And I'm indebted to Whitney for much of what I'm sharing with you over the next several weeks. None of it, of course, is original to me. And uh, none of what anyone preaches, I don't think, is original to them. But, uh, but Whitney has written extensively and insightfully on the spiritual disciplines. And uh, he goes on to say that these disciplines are habits. They are habits that have been practised by God's people since biblical times. Some of these spiritual disciplines we practise alone. Some of them we practise with other Christians. And some are practised both situations. Prayer, for example, is one that we practice alone, but we also practice here at church as a family. And on Wednesday nights at our prayer meetings and the time groups and various other places. Spiritual disciplines are activities. They're things we do. Our athlete will never achieve Olympic gold just by thinking about how much he wants it. He needs to do the hard yards of the exercise, the study, the training, the diet, all the things he needs to do to achieve that Olympic gold. Imagine the absurdity of our Olympic athlete relying on his good attitude to win the Olympic gold, but never actually training. I really, really want to win the gold at the Olympics this year. And we might say, well, you're going for the weightlifting gold, what's your personal best you've lifted in training? Oh, no, 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 I don't train. No, that's too hard. It hurts to lift weights, but I really, really want that gold. What hope has he got? It's farcical, but what hope have we got 
if we don't exercise some spiritual discipline in our life of being conformed to the image of Christ. Spiritual disciplines are not attitudes, they are activities. They are things we do. It's pretty simple really. It's not just enough to agree that they're good, to have the right attitude towards them, to really, really want them. We actually have to do. But the spiritual disciplines are also not activities like gardening, hiking, fishing, reading a good book. There's nothing wrong with those things. And they can even be helpful for our physical and emotional health, but they are not spiritual disciplines. They are not the God-ordained means of our growth. Now, we might be able to practice some spiritual disciplines while we're practicing those activities. We can pray while we are gardening. We can meditate while we're fishing. We may feel closer to God while we're hiking and we contemplate the beauty of his creation. But those activities are not the means of our spiritual growth. At best, they're an aid to spiritual growth. At worst, they can be a distraction from spiritual growth. Just a warning at this point. If you replace your Sunday morning church attendance with bushwalking because I feel closer to God when I'm walking in the forest than when I'm at church, the only thing you're growing in is deception. You're not growing in spiritual maturity. For God has ordained certain means, certain methods for our growth and regular church fellowship is one of them. People actually don't like to hear that much in this day and age that God has ordained that we should be in church regularly. (laughs) Another warning, the spiritual disciplines can be legalistic. The Pharisees were masters at exercising the spiritual disciplines. They'd even stop in the middle of a busy street to pray if that's when their prayer time came around. Never mind the traffic around them. They would stop and pray on the spot. They were masters at the spiritual disciplines. But to compound their error, not only did they do it legalistically, they insisted other people prove their own spirituality by doing the same thing. Jesus was scathing on them. I think I talked about this a few weeks ago. Absolutely scathing. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, he called them. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men and you neither go in yourself nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel land and sea to win one convert. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Serious stuff. They were masters the spiritual disciplines. There's a danger that we can misunderstand the purpose of them just like they did. We can view them as a way to impress God, maybe. To show him how serious we are about our spiritual life. It's a bit arrogant though when you think about it. Look at me, God. Look how dedicated I am. God reads the heart, not the activities. We all know that. He's not fooled by outward appearances. He's not fooled by our busyness, regardless of what it is we're busy doing. He's not impressed by any of our activities. He's impressed by our relationship to his son, Jesus Christ. That's what impresses God. We might imagine we can get God's approval 
by faithfully exercising the spiritual disciplines. But we can't earn his approval any more than the Pharisees could by their long-winded prayers. Approval also comes about because of our relationship with his son. You must be born again, he told Nicodemus. That's where approval comes from. A heart that is changed by new birth and submitted to Jesus Christ in faith. That is approval. We could slip into the trap of thinking that God owes us something because we've been faithfully practising our disciplines for a month, a year, a lifetime, but we can never put God in our debt. We are always in debt to him. Final error that comes to mind, you may think of some others, but the final one that I could think of was the mistaken notion that faithful practice of the spiritual disciplines is all we need to get to heaven. Say my prayers regularly, I'll go to church regularly, I'll fast, I'll read the Bible, I'll learn the Bible. That's what I need to get to heaven. But you must be born again, Jesus said. He didn't say, you can do the disciplines or be born again, take your pick. He didn't say, you can do the disciplines but it's helpful to be born again. He said, you must be born again. No option there. No substitute. If you're not born again, you can work your tail off doing the spiritual disciplines to no avail. So I'll run through briefly today the various spiritual disciplines to give you an overview from, of them. And then from next week, we'll begin to look at them in a bit more detail. The first one is prayer and uh, fasting, which I probably won't really touch on at the moment. I'm not sure if there's an order of importance in the spiritual disciplines, whether one is more important than the other, but the two that stand out to me as probably priorities would be prayer and Bible reading. So we have to start somewhere, so I'll start with prayer. And prayer is one of those practices that many of us struggle with. There's a few reasons for that. I think one of them may be the fact that prayer seems to be a one-way street. We talk, but we don't hear anything back. Not usually anyway. Sometimes we do. It's not to say that God can't or won't talk back to us. I've actually had an experience, which I might share next week, of God speaking to me audibly in response to one of my complaining prayers. I was telling him off effectively. Um, But he doesn't usually speak back, and certainly he doesn't usually speak back audibly. So we can feel like we're just talking to ourselves or talking to the ceiling. That doesn't make it prayer seem easy or natural but it's a spiritual discipline so it's something we need to do even if we don't feel like doing it even if we don't know if God's taking any notice he does though sometimes speak to us in pretty subtle ways that we tend to miss Mark and I were talking about this a little bit before church this morning about the times we might be praying for someone and the thought will just drop into our mind about the situation we're praying about and my habit is usually to dismiss it as just my own thought and, and uh, ignore it. And then maybe later on in the, while we're praying for someone, it will come out exactly what I thought is the truth or might come out a week later or something. Or maybe someone else will pray exactly what I was thinking. And I realised in hindsight, the Holy Spirit was actually saying to me something there about this particular situation for this particular person and I thought it was me so I ignored it. So he does that, I think he does that pretty frequently. But to 
<clears throat> to develop that spiritual ear is not easy. It takes practice. It takes sensitivity. And we tend to barge on and ignore it. Prayer is foundational to Christian life. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. If Jesus felt the need to draw aside and pray and sometimes pray for a whole night, what makes us think we can get away with being prayerless? (laughs) Do we need God less than Jesus? Could it be sometimes we think more highly of ourselves than we ought? Our Our attitude expressed or subconscious is, I've got things under control, so I don't need you, God. I think that's the case for me most of the time. I think it's the case probably for a lot of guys because we tend to be fairly practical by nature and uh, we just go ahead and do things. We'll try and fix and solve problems and not take it to God in prayer. So I said earlier, I struggle with this every day. It doesn't come naturally to me. It should be, you'd think, as natural and easy as talking to your wife or talking to your friend, talking to your workmate, but doesn't seem to come that easily. It comes easier to some people than others. Um, I don't know if that's related to personality type or something or upbringing. Um, maybe it's because sometimes we've been praying for years and haven't seen any discernible answers and basically don't really expect to get any, so we give up. Not sure. It certainly comes easier to Mel than it does to me. She'll drive into a shopping centre car park and she'll pray. Lord, will you give me a park close to the door? And I reckon at least nine times out of ten, someone will pull out of a car park close to the door and she'll drive straight in. I haven't got the faith for that. It works for her, but I just don't have the faith for it. I can pray for bigger stuff with faith. I can't pray for that. I don't understand it, I've got to be honest. But prayer requires intentionality. It requires that we set our hearts and our minds to do it if we're going to do it regularly and do it properly. I get so easily distracted. I start out with good intentions and realise five or ten minutes later that I'm not praying anymore. I'm thinking about situation at work. I'm thinking about the TV show I watched last night or there's a song running through my head or any number of different things. It's that stream of consciousness stuff where you get this thought train going that goes in all different directions and you stop and try and remember what you were thinking about and you can't because it's just gone all over the place. And I realise I prayed one or two sentences and then I'm off with the fairies. So come back again, start again, another one or two sentences and ten minutes later I realise I'm not praying again. Happened to me this morning in the wee small hours laying in bed awake and I thought well I'm awake I'm going to pray and I reckon I was lucky if I got two sentences off before my thoughts were off in all sorts of directions it's frustrating it's frustrating <laughs> uh, someone said I can't remember who someone said when we're praying we can get distracted by a fly on the wall it doesn't take very much we need intentionality we need we need some tools to help us sometimes and uh, I recognise my own weakness in this so I have a list normally that I pray through and uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that next week but if that's a, an issue for you like it is for me 
a list is a great way to help keep you focused. Next week we'll talk about a number of different um, ways of praying. And uh, you've probably heard some of them in the past, so we'll um, discuss some of those and hopefully give you some strategies and helps and keys to help you pray consistently, effectively, intentionally, without getting distracted by the fly on the wall. Second one, Bible reading and meditation, or number three on our list up there. It's right up there with prayer for importance. The Bible isn't just a book of old, irrelevant stories, as much as this modern society would like us to think it is. I have a workmate, in fact, we were just talking a few days ago, that thinks the Bible was written by one human being for the purpose of controlling others. Just for the record... The Bible is 66 books written by 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period. But it contains one message from start to finish. That's not a book written by one author in one sitting. It contains poetry, it contains proverbs, it contains genealogies, it contains parables, It contains apocalyptic stories that make no sense when we read them. There are so many different styles of writing in the Bible that it's impossible for one person to write it anyway. Historians know the Bible was written over 1,500 years. People are idiots. They don't want to know the truth. My workmate, I think, he was actually brought up his schooling was in a denominational school, like one of your Wesley Colleges type of things run by a denomination. And he walked out of there thinking the Bible was written by one person to control other people. What the heck do they teach them in these schools? That they've got a denominational name. It's staggering. The Bible tells a single story from start to finish the story of God's plan to redeem his people, to redeem you and me. Every single word in there has that purpose in mind, even the stuff we get bored by. We'll talk about that as well when we get a couple of weeks' time when we get to the Bible reading part. But the the fact that the Bible is such a complex book written over such a period of time should at least make people look at it with respect, not criticism and condemnation when you take into account all the innumerable attempts down through the millennia to marginalise the Bible, to burn it, to ban it from society, to mock it, the fact that it still still survives is testament to its divine origin. And if we look at the way it's changed millions and even billions of lives through history, people from radically different cultures Languages, backgrounds, experiences, eras. We can only assume there's a power in this book. There is a power in this book to change lives. A power that can only come from a divine source like God. We dare not neglect or ignore this book. There's a reason this book is so powerful though. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, 
of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What surgeon's scalpel can slice between soul and spirit? What psychologist can get so far into the mind that he can discern the intents of the heart? But this book does it when we pick it up and we read it. And it can do it even when we're not reading it. Because it's living and active. It gets into your very being. And it changes you from the inside out. God remoulds you when you get this book in your spirit. And he uses it, the Holy Spirit uses it to bring correction or comfort. He uses it to bring direction or discipline as he sees fit. What other book is there that remains living and active 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years after some of the original writings in it? It's a powerful book. Get it into you. It will change your life. But it's got to get in there. That's what this spiritual discipline is about. And worship. Next one. We all know what worship is, don't we? It's when we come together on a Sunday morning at church and sing songs to God. Oh, yes and no. It is and it isn't. Singing our praises to God when we gather on Sundays is a part that's only a part of worship. It's not the whole. I'm sure you've heard the old explanation of worship as worth-ship. Describing honour and value and worth to something. By that de- definition, when we open our church service by singing about the great works of God in creation or the amazing grace extended to us in Jesus Christ or the life-changing work of the Holy Spirit to apply the blood of Christ to us, when we're born again and we sing those things, we're ascribing honour and glory to God, we're ascribing value and worth to Him. We're recognising worship in God. We're worshipping Him. But, of course, we can just be going through the motions. We might be bored by what we're singing. We might be unmoved. We might be disinterested. We might be doing it just because it's what's expected of us when we're in church. That would be tragic. That would not be worship. We could sing as loud as we wanted, but that would not be worship. It would mean we've forgotten our first love. might even mean we haven't yet met our first love. We're not really born again. So we'll talk about some of those dangers in a few weeks or so when we get to the spiritual discipline of worship. But for now I just want you to understand a little of what worship is and what it isn't. Next one is fellowship. This is something I feel particularly passionate about. It's something very close to my heart. And it's not just because I now lead a church here. It breaks my heart, it really breaks my heart to hear of brothers and sisters that have abandoned church. And I know lots of them. People who, for whatever reason, have been hurt by the church or bored by the church or whatever it is, 
and have decided not to go anymore. It's a tragedy, an absolute tragedy. And they all have their reasons for not going. May have been hurt. So I know people have been badly, badly hurt by church. People, leaderships in the church have not only committed sins but have committed crimes against them. I know of people that have gone around church shopping and never really felt they fit in somewhere. They walk through the door and they get ignored. Walk out again, go to another church and get ignored. And no one welcomes them. That's a tragedy. I experienced that years ago, uh, long before we were part of this church, but we are in between churches and we went and visited a few. And most of them we went to didn't even say hello to us. And there'd be churches of hundreds of people thousand people or more and not a single person would say hello it's tragedy what if I was a oh, this particular one I'm thinking about I took the two boys along when they were little kids what if I was a young single dad on the brink of suicide and I was going to take out my two boys with me because I was in just a state of despair and I was going there as my last hope and no one even said hello to me it's shocking I'm passionate about the local church. I'm passionate and I love that people walk in here and they're welcomed. Some of them might feel overwhelmed by the welcome, but that's got to be better than being ignored. Keep it up, folks. Keep it up. Make people know that when they walk through here, this is a place anyone can walk into and be welcomed. Because we want you in here to hear the greatness of our God. You're not going to hear it if we turn our back on you and walk out somewhere and go nowhere or jump off a bridge. Keep it up. Maybe they can't find a church that preaches the gospel or maybe they don't like the music in the church. Maybe the church doesn't have a crash for the kids. We'll go somewhere else or we'll give up going altogether. I've heard many of their stories I've been in some of those situations with them. So to some degree I sympathise with them. And I went through a period many years ago when I wanted to abandon church because I felt like God and my brothers and sisters in Christ had betrayed me. And I genuinely considered not going to church anymore. The last place I wanted to be was in a church. I'll talk about that when we get to this spiritual discipline more. I'll tell you a little bit of the background of that. But God has been faithful to me. When I went through that tough time, God didn't give up on me, even though I wanted to give up on God. He is a faithful God, but you don't hear about it if you decide I'm going to sleep in on a Sunday morning and go to Macca's for breakfast. Where are you going to hear that you have a faithful God who will not abandon you? So today, I want to encourage you to make church going, regular church going a non-negotiable of your life make the commitment yourself that I'm going to be in church at least more often than not preferably every week, things get in the way we've got commitments, we have holidays all sorts of things, there's stuff that stops us coming to church sometimes but a lot of the stuff that stops people coming to church is lack of motivation lack of commitment don't let that be us. The other spiritual discipline is confession. 
I don't, I'm not going to say anything really about confession today except it's one of the spiritual disciplines given to us for our spiritual growth and uh, if it's given to us for our spiritual growth it's probably something we should practice a bit more often and talk about that when we get there. We're running out of time, we've probably run out of time so, so can I invite you to embark on this journey with me of being conformed to the image of Christ in 2019 and beyond of course, we won't just stop there but for 2019 can I invite you to make this a goal in your life to commit to some of these spiritual disciplines which I'll tell you more about in coming weeks but this coming week, this week in front of us can I ask you to commit to reading the Bible daily, even if it's only four or five verses or one chapter but make the effort to read at least a portion of the Bible every day this week. Make the effort to pray five minutes if that's all we can manage. Five minutes every day. Fifty minutes. Five hundred minutes if you feel motivated to do that. But at least make a commitment to pray five minutes at least every day. It might be a stretch even to do that. You might forget more often than you remember, but... We've got a God who's opened the doors to the throne of grace. We can forget and not be ashamed still and come to God and say, Sorry, Lord, I made a mess of that. I missed, I missed, I forgot. Three days now and uh, I haven't prayed. Sorry, Lord, but I'm back now. Is that all right? And it's all right. It's all right with God. He just wants you back. He wants you back through those throne room doors into his presence again. You might find that your long-standing habits and routine or the noise in your house or the pressures of work distract you and you don't get to it. If that's the case, that's fine. Think about, though, why? What are the things that are stopping me? If you find you're not able to do it consistently this week, at the end of the week say, OK, I'll look back over my week And what are the things that stop me doing it? Because if you don't know what the barriers are to implementing these spiritual disciplines, you don't know what to address and fix or change. The goal of spiritual disciplines is not just to harden up, princess. Although some of us probably do need to harden up. The goal is that we become more like Christ. That should be a beautiful goal for us. Particularly when we so desperately need the light of Christ in this world. These spiritual disciplines will help us do that because God has set them in place as, our means for our, as a means for our growth. We don't do it in our own strength, of course. Otherwise we become Pharisees trying to earn God's favour and approval but we do need to put time and effort into it. We do need to train like that athlete. The Holy Holy Spirit has taken it upon himself to conform us to the image of Christ. So he's going to do that one way or another. Now we can make the process a lot easier by practising the spiritual disciplines so we are conforming to the image of Christ naturally and organically or we can allow him to take us around the mountain again and again and again and again until we get the message that 
We need to change. We need to do something. Till we get sick of all things going wrong for us and no light at the end of the tunnel and turn to God and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I haven't forsaken you. You've wandered off. So will you join me this week in committing yourself to prayer and Bible reading as a start? For this week, we've got seven days till next Sunday. It's only seven times you have to read the Bible and seven times you have to pray. And if you don't make the seven, think about why. I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about. Um, You're all born again, I'm pretty confident, so I probably don't need to invite you to put your trust in Christ, but you never know. There's been people, I've heard of plenty of people, people sometimes have led churches for decades, discovering they're not actually born again, they're just used to going to church all the time. So if that happens to be you, then I'd invite you to put your trust in Jesus Christ right now. Because the spiritual disciplines aren't going to help you if you don't, for starters. But more importantly, eternity is on the line. For those of us who have done that, rejoice. The doors of heaven are open to you all day, every day. It's a 24-7 shop. (laughs) The throne room of heaven. Because Jesus Christ has done a work to open those doors and those doors can never be shut because he's opened it for us by his blood. Father, we commit this morning, we commit this message, we commit this week to you in the name of your son Jesus. Will you, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, stir us, challenge us, correct us, rebuke us if necessary, Lord. Would you change our hearts to be hearts that desire to be conformed to the image of Christ, that desire to learn of you through your word, that desire to talk to you through prayer, that desire to have those spiritual disciplines worked into our hearts and our lives in such a way that they become second nature to us, that second nature for us to get up in the morning and pray or read the Bible or whatever it may be. Lord, would you do that work in us this morning? Would you make us lights in our community? in our workplaces, in our our homes. Would you make us lights for Christ? Because only he is worthy of honour and praise. Only he is worthy of being lifted up and shone and shown to the world. Lord, we pray you'll do that work in us. Pray that as Christ is lifted up in our lives, that you, Lord, will draw all men to him. You will draw our friends and our family who don't know you to Christ. Lord, we pray for opportunities to be to be that light, to be the light that draws them like a moth to a flame. And they see that we stand out from the world, we stand out from the corruption of the world, because we serve a greater master, a greater king, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.